What's it called? I've forgotten. <laughs> oh, it is. What's it called? The Computer History Hour. The Computer History Hour. Well, welcome to the first of these podcasts called the Computer History Hour. Now, I'm not terribly sure how this is all going to go, um, but we'll start, we'll introduce ourselves, tell you some of the plans that we have for the podcasts, and I should say this is not going to be entirely serious. Uh, everybody contributing should have a serious drink in front of them, and probably I everybody do. listening do with a drink in front of them. My name's Kevin, Kevin Morell, and I'm joined with my co-host. Uh, ben Trithauer. Hello. And um, we have some, well, we're going to proper interview, uh, uh, introduction, and we do have some introductory music as well, which we uh, will probably have to stitch together. Quite how much editing we will do is... Uh, Unknown at this stage, probably very little because it takes so long to actually do. Um, what do we want to talk about? We want to talk about what's new in the world of computer history, in practice, um, what's happening at museums around the world, new projects, competitions, articles and books that are produced, and we have a whole series of people lined up to interview who are doing sort of active work in the subject. And these will be engineers doing work in it, and there's a couple of academics as well that uh, will may, may well frown on what's happening in terms of restoration. Um, but we have those lined up as well, and we would hope to produce certainly one episode of this podcast every month. At least every month. Have I covered everything? I think so. Okay. We'll always think of things later, if necessary. We will. Uh, museum updates first. Um, the museum I'm closest to is the National Museum of Computing at Bletchley Park uh, in the UK. And yesterday, 23rd of June 2018, mm -hmm. was the opening of the Bomb Gallery. Um, now, the quick aside, and many of you will know this, and a quick Google will help, the Turing Welshman bomb was an electromechanical machine that was used for decoding Enigma traffic in World War Two. It's a huge machine that had had been on display before at Bletchley Park, but has now come to us. Um, there's lots of information on the website, and I'll include some of the URLs in the show notes. Moving the machine was a job and a half. It weighs nearly two tonnes and required low loaders and cranes and doors to be taken off and sleds to be made and so on. But the machine's in place. It was working. The bomb team had it working the next day. Yesterday we had the opening. Um, I did, we started quite early. I did a little, little bit on the radio at 8.15 in the morning, probably well before Ben was actually awake. And a typical local radio, um, they dial you, they ring you up, and you sit and listen to their news, your broadcast, and then the travel news, and and then finally you hear an introduction to yourself. You then get to talk for ooh, must be even ninety seconds on occasions, 
and then you cut off and they're on to a story about a lost puppy in um, Luton. Well, it so, was local radio, wasn't it? So this was, it, this was BBC Three Counties radio, um, which I've had the pleasure of being interviewed by as well previously. Um, but how long, I think you had about eight minutes, didn't you? Eight, eight nine minutes? It didn't feel like it. I'm sure, I'm sure it was longer oh, than 90 it, seconds. I think it was minutes. Anyhow, they gave me an opportunity to plug the museum, so that was quite good. And the, uh, the day was very well attended. Uh, there were special bomb-themed cakes with an element of it that were 3D printed. I, mean, I can't actually imagine which bit was 3D printed. But I the ate... cakes? Yes. Oh, I did not know that. Um, I did see them. I ate the lot, so I don't know if I ate the 3D printed bit or not, or I was meant to. But then... I don't know. All I remember seeing was they had um, they had obviously the, the rotor wheels, uh, a printout of the rotor wheel on top of of the cakes. Can you 3D print icing? Uh, actually, you probably can. Oh, well. I'm sure you probably can. Actually, actually, I know for sure you can print icing. I'm not sure that's necessarily classed as 3D printing, but um, in the traditional sense. Um, but yes, you can print. I'm pretty sure you can print icing. Oh. So there must have been printed icing on top, which was which right. would be the bomb rotor wheels. So I definitely ate it anyhow. So. Yep. Um, BBC te- television turned up uh, mid-afternoon. Uh, no notice, of course, as usual, from TV companies, and they arrive and then create havoc for 15 minutes. But um, it made the sort of TV news. I think it was Look East, I think, last night. And that, um, it was a, an excellent day, and we had a, everyone had a really good time. Just a couple of updates from the museum in general. Basically, a couple of things that caught my eye, and that we would like to talk uh, and interview a couple of people and go into more detail next month, well, the, the subsequent episodes. Peter Onion doing a huge amount of work with the Elliot 803. And I didn't actually know this particularly, and I'm not sure Peter did either, that the, the machine that we have at the museum, an Elliot 803, Came originally, or not originally, but came eventually from Loughborough Grammar School, I believe. Yes. Where Peter had used it. And uh, the machine itself had been donated to the grammar school by Brush Engineering in Loughborough. And I didn't think, I didn't think Peter knew all of that, but we're, we're learning more of the history now. <clears throat> what Peter was actually showing me yesterday is the H code compiler for the 803. Um, my understanding before this was people either wrote indirect machine code or a form of auto code, mm. and then people switched to Argol mm. 60, 60 on the 803. Yeah. Um, but H code was developed by Brush Engineering um, independently of anybody else, and it's really very elegant, sort of super auto code, I think I would describe it as. Um, with a single pass compiler and uses a heck of a lot less core than the Algol compiler on the 803. Um, so Peter had it running on the real machine and on his um, simulation as well, his yeah. excellent simulation. Yes, simulation. So it'd be good to talk to Peter a bit more about the 803 in detail as well. Um, you were looking at the work Peter Vaughan was doing on the IBM 1130? Yes, yeah, I spent a bit of time with, with Peter on the 1130. Um, he'd done, uh, yes, uh, really, really good work on getting 
the diagnostic programs loaded into uh, loaded into the Open 30 via the console effectively by uh, patching in a set of Android control relays uh, into what are the console switches. So basically, well, I, I saw I saw the Android no not Android um, an Arduino con controller oh, on top. Arduino, sorry, yeah. And a whole row of relays. Mm. What were they connected to? So the console input switches, you know, binary one zero, uh, just in front of the typewriter printer. Right. So, so he's simulating a single word at a time into memory. He's simulating those switches uh, and simulating the load, you know, load data switch, and then moving on to the next address. So it's effectively simulating a person toggling the switches and pushing next, you know, the next button really, really quickly. Why not? <clears throat> that was obviously designed not to do that. I, mean, I think you were just you were designed to bootstrap from card, yes. from punch card. Yeah. Although I don't believe he has the right cards and he can't punch the cards at the moment because we have no punch. Do we? Oh. The 029 card punch is unhappy and has okay. been for a long time. Uh, I mean, he's got the card reader working, so so he thinks, and the main system and the um, line printer. Uh, and he's managed to find uh, the master diagnostic library in assembler for it, um, but has no way of getting it in there other than through the, the, the console switches. So he is basically kind of tapped off of the console switches, I think, into his Arduino controlled relay extravaganza, which is connected to his laptop. He has the assembly code on his laptop, and then he's basically dumping that out. Um, so he's, has he retyped all of that? A combination of retyping and OCRing, he had a, he found a scan. OCRing, that's, yeah, that's brave. Yeah, well, quite well. So he he found a scan of um, an assembly code listing of this master diagnostic library, OCR'd it as best he could, which did I don't know, perhaps it was seventy five eighty percent accurate, and then manually went through and fixed all of the. So all, all the zeros, all the zeros, yeah, O's and zeros. He called that out first. Yes, absolutely. Oh well, that that that, that oh, well done for him. Um, now, I saw code going into the 11.30. He was having trouble. Yes, so I think um, there was some issue with speed uh, initially. Um, he was, I think, perhaps being a bit too optimistic in how quickly he could fake uh, the the loading and the proceeding to the next address location effectively because, in reality, the 11.30 is expecting a person to do that manually. Of course, he had automated it. So, in fact, he was doing it. I think, he, yeah, I think at one point he was doing more than two or three instructions per second. Of course, a person wouldn't... Which is much faster than anybody could actually... Yeah, actually flip the switches and press get next. Because it's, it's not the fastest machine in the world. No, absolutely. No, absolutely. Um, so I think he pulled the speed back a bit, maybe one or two a second, a bit more realistic, perhaps even slower than that. I can't remember what he ended up at. Um, and he got a couple of successful loads as far as his little rig was concerned, uh, and it ended up at the correct address, the end loading address. Um, I think it was when he was inspecting what was in the memory at each location. He basically stepped through each location, making sure that what was in the 11.30 matched what was obviously should be in there from the assembly yeah. listing. Yeah. He got most of the way through and then found errors. So obviously he, thought, he found one error and thought, well, if there's one error, there's probably going to be other errors. And he couldn't quite work out uh, why that was the case um, because other locations were correct. So is he thinking it's a memory problem with the 11.30 or a sort of synchronisation? It's more of a synchronisation thing, I think. Yeah. He, I think he also has a core test for it, which I think he has toggled in manually before and run, and it's passed. I think he's less inclined to believe it's a core issue and more inclined to believe it, he's made a 
you know, kind of buck up effectively with, with the programming of the synchronisation between his rig right. and the 11.30. Okay. But that, I, I, it's fascinating. So it'd be, it'd, be, it'd be really interesting to actually talk to Peter um, a bit more about that. I went and had a chat with the uh, guys commissioning EdSAC. Mm-hmm. Uh, for people that don't know, we're rebuilding the EdSAC computer at the museum, which is... Um, Two and a half thousand valves, three thousand valves, a huge sort of machine. And although all the components are actually built, um, the racks are in place, the desks, the memories, actually commissioning it and joining elements together, matching signal levels, you know, who was expecting what and so on is mm. hard work. The guys were, it's like originally used. Mercury delay lines, mm-hmm. and uh, although apparently it's quite easy to get three quarters of a ton of mercury, triple okay. distilled mercury, mm. uh, can you see a problem with that? I can. I can see a problem with keeping that much mercury around people. Yes. Yeah, even in sealed tubes. Yeah. Well, so we decided well, in these fact, days anyway. We probably wouldn't do that, um, but we wanted to use a sort of delay line storage. So using nickel delay lines um short nickel delay lines for the sort of short what were the short tanks on the ed sack and longer ones short ones are fine they're working quite well long ones are getting more and more awkward but the guys commissioning the machine can switch those memories in and out um and you can replace four huge coffin sized uh memory units with um I don't know if it's a Raspberry Pi or an Arduino, actually, but um, well, and that's, well, at least well, you have well, an accurate, yeah. yeah. So um, they're, doing quite, they're doing quite well. Well, we were sort of thinking that a, a launch of the working machine might be autumn this year. A few people looked at me quizzically about that and thought perhaps... Perhaps not. Perhaps not, yes, indeed. Perhaps spring... Um, might be a better bet. Mm. So, anything caught your attention, particularly yesterday? In general, um, I'm just thinking my way around. I don't believe so. I mean, I, th- I think the harbour was in good, good working order. I was being used to demonstrate certain bits and pieces, as, as it usually is. I I looked at the harbour machine first thing in the morning, just just in passing. Yeah, likewise. And um, you can actually tell from the sound. Mm. Um, oh no! It was it was pacing through its usually running its usual program. Well, it's either running a store test that time in the morning or doing the tables of squares. Oh, no, I think it was doing. I'm talking about during the day. So um, it was being it was being demonstrated during the day to our visitors. Right. Um, I think it was probably running through the table of squares program um, at, during that point. But it, it seemed fairly healthy. Um, obviously, you've already spoken about EdSAC. Um, the ICL twenty nine sixty six was on and running. Uh, yesterday. Oh, I saw. I saw that it was on and running. Actually, actually, I was just thinking. Um, I mentioned the eight oh three. That was running till about two thirty ish. Yes. But it was a hot day a here warm. yesterday, mm. and uh, I was talking to Peter, and the temperature of the sort of CPU cabinets was up to. I don't know. Well, <laughs> approaching thirty. But, anyhow, but warm. Yeah, but too warm. Um, so so Peter turned it off. But the obviously so the twenty nine sixty six was surviving in that heat. 
Well, 2066 is on, but 2066 has the uh, uh, the ventilation shaft, if you remember as well, the kind of concoction on the on the top of the cabinets to circulate outside air through it. Well, there are so many fans in it, you can't hear yourself think next to it anyhow. No, but we have we have the kind of not not quite air conditioning, but the kind of the the building fan arrangement to to pump air from outside the building in through the through the 2966 cabinets and back out again without actually going into the room whereas obviously the 803 is just in the room absorbing the heat of right, all the people okay. in the room and so everything else in the room yeah so we are venting the air so we are venting the air in and out of the 2966 to the atmosphere not to the room actually thinking about the power loading at the museum yesterday must have been pretty high because there was a lot on actually that's a good point yes um, yes I'm Everything not sure well, I think everything, all the vent sack was on. I was on. The uh, the um, tack was on as well. What, the Marconi tack machine? Yeah, the tack was on at one oh, point. Right. I saw the tack on. Uh, 2066 and the A23 for most of the day, yeah. notwithstanding, obviously, the fact we had the bomb running. Um, once the gallery had opened for various demonstrations, plus... Colossus, Tunney, and all the, uh, well, all the rest of the museum was, was running as usual. But the rest of the museum, I mean, by the time you get to micros and things yes, like that, it's, much, it's, it's trivial, isn't yeah, it, really? There's still quite a lot of it, in, to in total, when you, when you tot it all up with, with all the big stuff. Well, generally, the big machines, you can go around going, oh, five kilowatts there, six there, four there, and so on. Mm. So, um, oh, we did quite well. Oh, that's not bad. Um, local updates as well. Um, I mentioned... Uh, Peter looking after the IBM 1130. I know in a home workshop he's doing a huge amount with silicon graphic machines. Mm. Um, I see various huge parcels from eBay arriving, so I think he's cornering <laughs> the market in silicon graphics. In bits for silicon graphics machines, uh, SGI machines. Best of luck, really. Uh, complete aside, um, I was sort of, I was, I was. We were talking about Arduinos a bit, and a short while ago, and I am um, a different Peter using that with the IBM 30. I've not really got into Arduinos at all, but I've just actually got the first one connected up with a uh, eight-way relay board. It's all behaving itself, and this is about as electronic computing as the bomb is. But I managed to pick up a the central mechanism from a fruit machine at a car boot sale mm. and I this is absolutely fantastic the sort of the logic that's actually built into that um, that's going to be hooked up to that Arduino shortly um, and actually it may well find its way back to the museum I can see a put a pound in the slot to donate to the museum mm. the wheels spin and um, what happens if you if you if win, you win. <laughs> a little light comes on and Say well done for winning and it says well done for winning, <laughs> winning absolutely and, and no, you, no you don't get the money no, back no you don't get the money back or all the money that's been no <laughs> um, perhaps printing a bit of paper tape say I yeah. well that's certainly doable I won this at the National Museum of Computing yeah hurrah well that's a plan uh, thinking about other projects P couple of things PDP8 which we need to Sort out at the museum. We uh Which PDP eight? Right, which PDP eight? There's a PDP eight F which works. Mm -hmm. And I did a bit of work over in fact over Christmas now, 
and I've got two serial ports working in that machine. Oh yes, yes, I recall. Which is um, took several weeks to actually get that far. And what I'd like to use is the serial disk emulator for that. So we don't have a disk system. Mm. Um, I mean, ideally we'd have a controller card and an RK05 or a couple of floppies. We don't have either. But the serial disk interface works very well. Now, I got as far as being able to talk to the console and booting from the serial disk and then discovered another intermittent problem with the 8F. Mm. And that was a a deposit and clear wouldn't always work. So, but it works if you single step it. Yes, I, I, yeah, I remember that's where you got to a while back. And I need to use a, uh, a logic analyzer, which I've never used, and I have no idea. So that could be a struggle. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sure we have some expertise in, in u- the use of logic analyzers within the museum, which could be combined which could be combined to um, fix that problem right we'll have a go uh, and keep updates for people uh, so that's our own project news uh, the museum you're about to start digitising some tapes as well right? is that uh, well I wouldn't say digitising more Transcribing, I suppose. Um, so these are the interview tapes um, uh, done back in the 70s uh, of various computing pioneers. So Tommy Flowers included. So Tommy Flowers is, is, is the one um, the one that we first think of, um, but also people like Conrad Zusa uh, and uh, a few others. I can't remember who else is on the series, you might. Okay. Are these not on the web yet? I don't believe so. Um well, um, we could, uh, and we have captured the audio digitally from, I mean, these are cassette tapes, analog cassette tapes. So we have the, we have the audio uh, digitally, but of course the audio is not searchable, not easily, not for, not for research purposes. So was the plan to describe, so, to transcribe, transcribe? Uh, transcribe into text, and of course the text is searchable. Then, and then obviously Can you do that in software? Uh, again, I think it's a bit like OCRing, isn't it? With It's a bit hit and miss. Um, I was just planning on on settling down with with a keyboard that's equivalent to an old-fashioned typewriter uh, and and transcribing it manually um, somewhat cathartically in a corner quietly over over some time with and also bit, listening to <coughs> with a lot of gin I should imagine well maybe yes I'm um, just just grinning at the at the uh, witticisms and the recollections that are actually contained in the tapes whilst also typing them out right and there's no easy way of doing that is there at all I think not that you wouldn't then spend the same amount of time fixing afterwards. I have to say, I think there are hours on those tapes. Well, I'm not saying I do all of them in one go, but um, I, th- I think you yeah, know perhaps we can start with 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 one. So, say Tommy Flowers. Yeah. Uh, one, um, you know, see how it works with that. Um, get it put put on the website, etc. Make it available for public consumption. Uh, right. See what the uptake is, and then obviously go and do the others if there's if there's an the, interest. And the point is, it's searchable. It's searchable. It, it's Google will grab it and search it and index yeah, it. Yeah, so the text us. is searchable, and of course, if you really do want the the full audio, at least you know we've got it, and at least you know where it is. Then, don't you? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Good. That's a plan. Yeah. And potential travelling for you. So potential travelling uh, through my day job. Uh, anyway, so I'm a volunteer at the National Museum of Computing, and and have been for. 
uh, about 14 years now. Mm. Um, I was discussing with someone only yesterday uh, during the bomb gallery opening, which seems impossible, um, but time flies. Um, but uh, my day job, uh, working as a senior security architect, uh, are flying me out to Seattle in July. Um, we have a in we Seattle. Have, yes, we have a, an office in Seattle. Anyway, um, and there's and, a very good museum. And in yes, the listeners um, will, will presumably know that there is a very good computer museum in Seattle. Incidentally, yeah. Um, so hopefully we can uh, we can do something uh, since I'm there as well. Um, okay, and that's the li- that living living computers museum and labs. Right. Have you been before? So yes, I've been once before. I went last year. Um, All right. And? Off the back of another, off the back of another work trip, but for a, uh, only for a few hours. I, I went on the uh, on the way back to the airport, so mm-hmm. I only had a few hours to spare. Um, but did it's you fantastic. go in, incognito, or did you admit no, the fact uh, that you? No, I. It was fairly incognito. Uh, it was. It was. Um, I think it must have been a Saturday. Um, it was fairly quiet in the museum. There were very, fairly few staff. Right. On. Uh, I mean, n- none of the volunteers were in. Uh, oh, you, manning need, machines. you need that. You need that. Yeah, so none of the volunteers were in manning machines. Obviously, the front of desk, front of house staff yeah. were there, and I had a little chat with them, and obviously mm. kind of told them who I was, etc. And they they'd heard of TNMOC, which is good. Yeah, uh, and they were aware of it, etc. But obviously, because it was a weekend, and I went unannounced, effectively, that you know there were, none of the uh, restoration teams were right. were in. But um, that that wasn't necessarily a problem. I still got to walk around uh, the the building, um, which is frankly huge, and, and they have a very a very good. Uh, vast collection of of interesting machines from from small to big, but lots of big. Um, yeah. And uh, personally, some of those guys. Yeah, well, some of those guys came over. We we had a sort of a conference on um, well, state in the art, state of the art in computer restoration um, and replica building. This was last summer. And Which few, conference was this? Was this the one at the uh, BCS? Well, yep. Yes. We had day one at the BCS, which was the more academic paper yes. production and so on, and then a more practical day at the museum the day after. Yeah. And some of the guys came across from, from Seattle for that. Oh, so, so um, I probably spoke to them because I presented a paper at the second day, didn't I? You Yes, they did as well, so they will know you. You must so, have bumped into the... Yes, I'm, yeah. I'm, sure, I'm sure we crossed paths um, right. at some point, but... Uh, yeah, so I think uh, for, for for two reasons, or two or three reasons perhaps, it would be useful to obviously make contact with them in advance this time. Yes. Um, one, so that um, you know I can meet up with with a bigger team, swap thoughts, ideas, what what they're doing, what we're doing, mm. update them, update us, uh, etc. But also perhaps to host one of uh, one of these podcasts there with that group would be rather fun. Oh. Now that that's that's just the sort of thing I would really quite like to be doing on these podcasts. Um, we have you know uh, people that we know in France, in Germany, uh, California. Yep, absolutely. Uh, guys in Seattle. I think even the, the guy, uh, the the team in um, Australia as well. Uh, in fact, there are actually there's quite a few people we could talk to in Germany as well, which would be would be quite good. Isn't it? But, uh, Italy as well. We know people in yes. Italy and uh, the Museum of Pisa. Yeah. I think a couple of people in Russia as well contributed to the CCS conference a few years ago. That's right. Okay. So I think I think fairly internationally, to be honest. I think yeah, pretty much yeah. everywhere. How that will work, guys, with the sort of time scales, and um, I expect some of us were sitting there ready for bed with a with a drink in our hand, and other people will be just having breakfast. But um, let's see how we get on. Yeah, but I think uh, right. I think it'd be a good opportunity to exploit since I happen to be there anyway. Yes. Yes, indeed. Um, 
I was thinking of the potential interviews. We talked about... Uh, I, actually, it would be good to get the EDSAC team. I might go along on the next time the EDSAC team have a meeting, which is fairly regular, and actually sit in and talk to them. We might... Um, we're going to try and do this pretty... Well, as close to live as possible. But I, if I go and record a section with them and we do a special wrapper around that, that'd be really quite good. I... Variety of people want to talk to. Um, I'm a bit of a deck um, enthusiast, so uh, anything to do with the PDP8, PDP11 um, is of interest to me. Uh, we all know about the Pi DP8. Um, it would be interesting to talk to Oscar about progress of the Pi DP11 Absolutely. as well, um, and I'm sure Oscar would be up for that. Uh, you talking to the Living Computer Museum? FPGAs. FPGAs. I went to a conference organised in Hebden Bridge uh, last year now, actually. Um, on one of the sessions, a couple of day sessions, was on programming FPGAs. And I hadn't got a clue at the start. <laughs> Have you done any of this? Uh, way back when in university, but not since, to be honest. Right. It is a very different... It's a very different mindset. Yes. From, the, from normal coding. But, but, but I got a couple of things working. Um, enough to be dangerous, certainly. I downloaded a gazillion terabytes of data that I need for FPGA development and ferry log and, and the rest yeah, of so it. Yeah, so say it'd be the development environment, won't it, mostly? Yeah, um, IDE. I, I mean, when the software installation actually requires you to go out and buy an external disk because you haven't got enough space, <laughs> this, is, this is hard work. But managed to get a an FPGA implementation of the PDP-8. Please yep. around. And actually running um, OS 8. Now, I know the guys that uh, organised that conference, so it'd be interesting to actually talk to them because they've done a huge amount of work. They designed the board themselves. Mm. And I think they've, there are a lot. You're not obliged to download all of those awful tools that are huge and oh, bloated no, no, and no. licensing is a nightmare. So. Um, now, I happen to know that they meet regularly in a pub, which is not a million miles away from me. So that seems like a good excuse to go and chat to them. Oh, absolutely. Else. Yes, very much so. Right, a couple of other updates as well from the museum. We have a gallery at the museum uh, that was sponsored by NPL, National Physical Laboratory. And it was really to celebrate some of the work by Donald Davis and his team on packet switching. Mm. And we we tried as much as we could to do it, to morph it into a uh, history of internet, internet, internet yes. technology. Yeah. And um, it's not perfect by a long chalk. And uh, I've been hauled over the coals before about it. Yesterday, we had uh, a visit from... Quite a senior executive of Janet, the Joint Academic Network, mm. who were involved throughout all of this history, and I got tore, stripped torn off me that I hadn't mentioned. Oh, I think Janet wasn't mentioned. 
there's a whole series of X-25 hadn't been mentioned and mm. so on. Yeah. So I think it's about time we did some work. I think it's definitely due a refresh, isn't it? Uh, how long has that been there now, that gallery? It's been quite a while. That's probably been there 10 years now. Yes, I think so, quite possibly. So yeah, I think it's definitely due a refresh. Yeah, but I think actually the, the gallery space, actually, if, from my point of view, worrying about the museum and the expenses and things like that, the gallery space is probably all okay. Yeah. It's the content and there's displays... Yeah. Well, we've got the display boards, and we've got some of the interactive exhibits in there as well, um, yeah. which could possibly do with a bit of a bit of a juice, bit of a refresh. Um, I think the space and the fixtures and the fittings and you know is fine, and possibly uh, much of the content is fine, but perhaps just some just some updates. So we wind back a little bit about some of the early history from NPL. It mm. Needs to be mentioned. Oh, of course, yeah. Um, which is important, um, but we need to cover a lot more. Okay, so that's one particular job. Yeah. And I'm sort of want to promise to actually get on with that. Do that. I yeah. need to do that. Um, the air traffic control gallery is due for a refresh, I think. Although it hasn't been in place. It's not been in place as long as the MPL gallery has or some of our other galleries. But uh, it's been in place at least two years now. I think maybe three. We certainly were doing the planning, the final planning for it back in 2014. So, I mean, you know, the kind of concepts in it are at least four years old now. All the ideas behind it are at least four years old now. And this extends because we've had the air traffic, two air traffic displays, which are the remains of the the old PDP eleven based system that came out of West Drayton. West Drayton, yeah. which was a sort of London area air traffic control. Yes, yeah, the Latsy site, London area and terminal control centre. Yeah, right. so that was West Drayton. Um, so we still have obviously those those two systems, uh, the PRDS systems. Um, one of which is, is on display in that gallery, in the, in the new uh, air traffic control gallery. And that will remain, as it is, of course. And the extra bits in there? Uh, well, when when Nats uh, originally sponsored that gallery a few years back and, and we did the initial fit, uh, there are two additional uh, air traffic control workstations in there now to complement what we took from West Drayton. Uh, one of those is uh, a Swanick Alpha workstation uh, from the... From the area control centre at Swanwick, um, which is almost outgoing technology now as well. Um, that was from the Swanwick area control system, which was originally spec'd back in the 90s and has been in service since the early 2000s and is uh, now, as we speak, being pulled back out of service and being replaced with something new. Um, but that was effectively the, the follow-on from, from PRDS, which is what we took from West Drayton. Okay. So the plan would be to keep that? Absolutely, so we'll keep that um, because we've, we've kind of got a, a, a mini timeline of, of the equipment. We've got, we've got West Drayton, we've got Swanwick, and then we have kind of uh, the future element, which is um, a 3D uh, air, tra air tower, air traffic control tower simulator from the uh, Nats Training College. Well, that's fantastic. Yes, it's very, that, it's very that, visually good. Is that that's showing Gatwick Airport? I believe it's now Stansted. Actually, so they have done a refresh of that um, in terms of the model that's shown and some of the some of the simulated traffic that's shown. Um, uh, so we, I think we had Gatwick originally, and now we've got Stansted. There were plans at one point to have Heathrow as well because it's just much more visually impressive. There's a lot more going on. A lot more going on, um, uh, and the model's a lot better. You know, it's just a lot more stuff. It's a bigger site, etc. Now I know you can pan around and you can you can follow planes and so on. Is that following a? Is that a recorded? Day at Stansted, or uh, no? So it's a it's a three D model of, of simulated traffic. However, the simulated traffic is being controlled by real people. So it's a, it's a full immersive simulation which is run in the training college at Nats. 
Right. So what they effectively do is, is, is set up the simulators with a bunch of parked aircraft at Stansted in real locations at Stansted. Um, they set a, a bunch of what they call pseudo pilots down in one room who pretend to be the pilots of those aircraft uh, using the simulated equipment. Uh, a bunch of trainee controllers in another room with simulated instruments, simulated radar, and the simulated 3D display, which is effectively the windows of the of the air traffic control tower. So these pseudo pilots are pretending to be in particular planes, absolutely on the stand or yep. approaching, and they'll feed the controllers the, the standard commands. So you know, ready for pushback, start up, etc. And the controllers will obviously respond as they would do in a real air traffic control scenario, give them permission to start up. Uh, rather than flicking the the seven three seven or the seven eight seven start switch, however, they'll just press the button on their yeah. on their touch screen, which corresponds yeah. to the correct the correct command, and the simulator will do the rest for them. It's a fantastic view. Actually, it's it's uh, we will obviously add some notes into the show notes um, uh, about this, but the um, on three big big displays, big screens. Yeah. Um, it's it, it's it's quite fantastic actually watching watching this going on. It's good. And it's, it's it's been really good. It was I think it was a, a a pretty good hit when we when we fitted it originally back in 2014 2015 mm. when we did the initial fit. Um, but it, it's getting a little tired now. I think I think it is due a due a little bit of a refresh because some of the technology has changed uh, and some of the content, much like the MPL gallery, is, is a little out of date now. Um, so just just to give it, it a is bit a of museum, a, I would hasten to add. Well, absolutely, but but also it, it makes this it makes the story more interesting. I think just to see you know. What, what the real cutting edge is, you know, what, what's there at the moment was the real cutting edge four years ago. Right. <laughs> the real cutting edge is, is no longer the same. It's a, it's a little bit better, as it would be. Um, plus, it gives us some extra stuff to demonstrate. So, we always wanted to um, add a, a what, we, what we termed a fully interactive mode to, to the Nats Gallery as well back, back in 2014, which we never quite finished, um, which is giving the members of the public the opportunity to actually... Um, try out being a controller and, and actually run in the simulator. So oh, they, put, wow. they put a headset on. We'd have a pseudo pilot, exactly as I just spoke about, uh, in another room of the museum. Um, and they'd be feeding the commands and we'd have a bit of a script so they'd know what to say. Obviously, otherwise they wouldn't wouldn't necessarily know what the right commands were, but really get them involved. And, and, we, and we never finished that bit off. Um, everything's there for it. We have the headsets, etc. We just never really finished that bit off. So that would definitely be one to, to get going. Um, and the other thing that we really wanted to show uh, in the upgrade was the move to electronic flight strips. Uh, so some people might know that the air traffic controllers for a long time have used paper flight strips. Um, no, I've seen those. That's a little rack of strips on bits of plastic that they jiggle around and so on. Exactly, yeah, with the flight number and details about that flight, you know, its intended uh, route. So e- each strip is a particular flight? A single aircraft, yeah, absolutely. And they reorder them and move them around according to what's going on with them. So, you know, they, they tend to be in altitude order. So if they re-level a pl- an aircraft, they might swap them around in the same stack that they're currently in. And as they move them through, they'll move on to different racks. Um, Is that all gone? It's pretty much all gone. Um, right. Certainly in this country, anyway. Uh, yeah. So um, area control moved away from paper flight strips a long time ago. And terminal control uh, should just be about doing the same right now. Um, so it's all going electronic. I say it's all going electronic. It's just a, it's just an electronic representation of exactly the same thing. So rather than bits of paper in plastic holders on wooden boards, there's now a great big touchscreen. So uh, it's virtual, yeah, virtual, virtual, but, virtual plastic but, strips. Yeah, but the strips are still there, so they can still write on the strips with a pen on a touchscreen. They still move the strips around using the pen on the touchscreen. Um, so it's kind of a, an electronic representation of the of the old paper flight strips. Okay, that would be really quite nice to do, wouldn't it? 
the idea uh, of virtual of um, pseudo pilots and air traffic controllers around the museum controlling this sounds like a recipe for disaster. But I'll uh... well, it'd be one of each. I mean, we're not going to we're not going <laughs> to we're not going to be too ambitious here, are we? I think we're one one pseudo pilot, one controller, and of course it would be very well curated. Would have people on hand to uh, to help right. out. And in fact, we have we have two. Well, in fact, we have two. Um, PPL, as in private pilot license qualified pilots who are volunteers at the museum, so they'd be great. Oh, really? <laughs> in the oh, in the pseudo right. pilot position. Oh, excellent! And we also have uh, a current controller, a current um, civilian controller who's one of our volunteers as well. So in fact, we have all of the. Oh, we have all the. So yeah, we have all the people covered uh, in terms of the expertise. Um, oh right, okay. I mean, no, we can't no, guarantee that. that they'll be there all the time, but they can certainly script what sh- people should be doing and what people should be saying. Okay, well, that sounds like an episode, a podcast in itself, then, doesn't it? Actually, I think we probably do a whole podcast on the history of of computing and air traffic control with with all those folks. I mean, and in fact, the current controller used to work for Nats in engineering, so oh right, has has all of the uh, has all of the expertise in that background. Excellent, excellent. Um... Thinking of virtual things, the other thing that I saw at the museum yesterday, which I knew about but had never seen in a huge amount of detail, are these virtual uh, these sort of simulations of Colossus and the Lorenz machine that Martin Gillow has put together. Yes, absolutely. They've been around for a while. He's been working on them for, for a long time. I mean, it's taking a, they a lot of They are fantastic. They are brilliant. I mean, and the de- the level of detail, yeah. I was really taken aback by the detail, the animation, the sound effects, uh, all, yeah. all of it is is brilliant. It's, it, he's put an awful lot of effort into that. Um, it's been it's been a long time in development, but I think I think it's pretty much finished now. I mean, they, they look you know perfect in, in terms. I of I think uh, Lorenz and Colossus um, Dragon is a machine I don't know a huge amount about, and uh, he's working on that still. Yes, I think he's still touching that up, tidying that up. Really, quite, and I'd, I'd forgotten, and I was sort of trying to be sort of super clever and say, hey, wouldn't it be fantastic if you could link <laughs> more than one virtual Colossus machine to another one and send encrypted messages? Yes. And, of course, he opened a window and on that thing, it, yeah. and it's, it's there already. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and very clever. It's like, it's actually, it looks on the, on the, inter, on the internet, on the interweb network, whatever, um, for other virtual... Colossus machines. So it's obviously got some sort of discovery system to actually sort of this is, identify. This is, this them. is the Lorentz, isn't it? This is, this is virtual Lorentz. Uh, oh, is it right? Yeah. Okay, so yes, this, this that's is the, right. The Lorentz machines, and in fact, we we demonstrated a, 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 effectively a prototype version of of what Martin now has. Um, I can't remember how long ago, but a while ago, uh, at the museum as part of one of our kind of regular Thursday lectures, um, and Martin had um, a receiving end virtual Lorentz. He was, at, he was at the he museum. He was at the museum, yeah. And um, I was asked to be the remote end virtual Lorentz, effectively. Um, so you've got two Lorentzes communicating. Um, we, we, we linked, um, obviously, using the internet. And obviously, Martin's written all the all the code to do that. Yeah. Um, but then, actually, uh, the, the Lorentz setup procedure and, and, the, and the message sending, um, we, we replicated exactly how, as it would have been in, in World War II. Um, so he has replicated the code lookup table, Mm. Um, to to set the wheel start positions. So, so you both you both had a, effectively a co- um a, a one time sheet yep. thing to go in uh, into the oh I, 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 
I can't remember the name of the device that you um the uh the yeah, board I, I that you put in. I think it's effectively the German for for, for code table or something like that. Code table, table feature somewhere. Um, but... Now even if I did know, I could recognise it um, and look it up very quickly. I probably couldn't pronounce it, but well, I'll put a note uh, in the show notes. And that worked. That worked. Communicating buttons and forwards. Yeah, I mean, and in fact, you know, we, we demonstrated that in front of in, obviously in front of a an audience. So. Right. So I sent a, a set of wheel start positions using the code table um, uh, in, in clear in clear text. So you, so you send the the letters representing uh, where the wheel start positions are, right. rather than the wheel settings, because you don't want other people to know the wheel yeah. settings yeah. for obvious reasons. Um, uh, Martin looked up what the corresponding wheel settings were in his copy in of his the copy one time of the code table. Absolutely yeah. sets the wheel start position on his Lorentz. Um, I then send UMUM, which is what they sent to basically say I'm ready to go. Right. Um, at which point both both ends turn on their Lorentz, they turn it to the enable position effectively, i.e. enable encrypting. Yeah. Uh, and then send a message, and I can't remember what the message was I sent, but uh, hello world. I, well, it was it was equivalent to that, but perhaps a little bit pepped up for the event itself. So I think yeah. it referred to the event itself. Uh, and of course, on both ends, you see uh, the encrypted text, uh, and then assuming we got all the settings right, which luckily we did. Um, at the bottom of of, of Martin's uh, virtual events, you see the plain text back out again. Absolutely, I mean, brilliant. Uh, we'll include the links in the show notes, but they are well worth a look. Um, Martin was showing at the museum on on a huge sort of fifty six, sixty, sixty something inch. Uh, yeah, great monitor. big screen. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think you need a good high resolution display to get the best of it. But you, you can do. you can pan around. Oh, you can scroll. Yeah. But the level of detail, being able to switch to move individual wheels and set yeah. the, the positions on individual wheels, is really quite. You can lift the also for the virtual events itself. You can lift the cover and you can set the the wheel pins yeah. on the individual wheels. Put the cover back down. Obviously, set the move the wheels to set them into the correct start positions, yeah. um, which is just fantastic. Obviously, here's the virtual colossus as well, um, which has infinitely more changeable controls. Um, in terms of the pin settings again, the wheel start positions again, okay. um, the counts, um, you know, the count limits as well are all configurable. I was, I was really impressed on a couple of fronts actually. Uh, it's all written in JavaScript. Yes, apparently. I never imagined you could get JavaScript to run that quickly. To do all that. <laughs> but um, but there you go. That's, that's just me. Um, and his understanding <clears throat> of. The Rents machine, which is one thing, an understanding of, of Colossus, which is quite phenomenal, actually. And he's had to understand well, that. Well, exactly, to, as he to, said. To, to simulate it. You, you can't simulate it without knowing exactly how it works. No. So it's almost uh, an encouragement for him to, to learn more about all those machines, to be able to simulate them. And he's done, a like, like we've said several times now, a fantastic job, remarkable job. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I wonder if the government know we could still use that to actually send encrypted traffic. It's probably illegal by now, actually, isn't it? It might be. I imagine that um, any analyst that saw it coming out would go, what the hell is that? <laughs> That's not AES. That's not TLS. Oh, that would be quite cool, wouldn't it? So I could send it. Is anybody at GCHQ listening to this? Let me know. Yeah. Send a tweet out or something like that. Yeah. Well, I'll just send a tweet out with a Lorentz encrypted message from the museum. Just saying, does anyone know what this is? Basically, oh, cool. like the Cypher Challenge again. Do you remember the Cypher Challenge? Uh, yeah, Cypher Challenge was something that Tony Sale organised a long, long time ago mm. where we we shipped 
a Lorenz machine to the museum at Pandorn. Yeah. Uh, another great, great, absolutely terrific museum. Good guys to talk to on one of these podcasts. We shipped the Lorenz machine out there. And that, that, oh, I remember that was a. Even that <clears> took <throat> quite a lot of effort, didn't, didn't it? Didn't we have to get the RAF to shift it? Yes. It like, was, or the army? It, it, I think it was the RAF. It had to be taken by the military. Yes. Yeah, definitely. They encrypted a, a message. A message in Paderborn. Transmitted that with a local the radio hams or something like that. Yep. Which you're right, because the radio hams in Milton Keynes near the museum. Yep. Picked up that message for us. Exactly, as would have, yeah. And Colossus was set about decoding it. Yes. Now, Colossus ran for a good six hours. I know Tony didn't know what the message was. And certainly had cracked it in six hours. Tony's crafty, though, so you never quite know what he was actually up to. Doing, yeah. But, um... And I can't remember the type of the name. The German chap that actually won the competition cracked it on a pair of, uh, it's a pair of Linux-based le- le- uh, desk uh, laptops. It was, it was PC-based, was wasn't it? Yeah, it was PC-based, and he was using Ada, wasn't he? Was it? Was it written in Ada? It was. I think it, it was, was written, written in Ada. Ada. Yeah. But he'd obviously done quite a bit of work in advance and cracked it in absolutely no time whatsoever. Um, well, you say that, but I think it was. I think it was still an hour, or it was. It was. Substantial. Oh, right. It wasn't like two minutes and it was done. I think it, it still took perhaps one to two hours. Right. And Colossus followed up six to seven hours later, perhaps. Which, given the which distance isn't bad. between the two, isn't isn't bad, really, is no, it? No, absolutely. Especially not. considering, and I know, I think Tony. Well, Tony did say this. Um, it was also true because I was there on the day. Um, we had some reception problems, uh, or the Milton Keynes Amateur Radio Society. Oh yeah, it had some reception it... problems in picking up the message in the first place. The atmosphere is in the wrong place, or something. Well, quite. But then, I mean, Paddle was quite far away, if you're a radio, from from England. And of course, in World War Two, we had the Y stations, the the outstations that were intercepting the teleprinter code as well. Oh, with serious aerials. Yes, as well. with proper setups and yeah. and not in the middle of Bletchley. You know, actually, you know, outposts, not cult, etc. Um, so. So it took them a while to actually get a good, clean copy of the signal in the first place, but but they got it, and and Colossus did its bit, and and even you know even with all that, it still did it in in the same day, you know, hours later, which is quite phenomenal. Yeah, and it's quite absolutely yeah phenomenal. I think something worth repeating at some stage. I think uh, so. I, it was good fun that day. Um, obviously, gets everyone involved, not only the, the the kind of code base side, but obviously the radio operator side as well. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Indeed. I wonder if we could do that to no Paderborn to Paderborn to England would be quite good actually. We could we should do that again. We'll do that again. Right. Um. Ba 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 ba. We're trying to think of some good rock about arguments as well that we can actually have. I mean, I wrote down a note a few seconds ago. Is we need to get somebody on to defend the six five zero two. As everybody knows, that the uh, the late seventies and the eighties were ruled by the Z eighty, mm. God's own microprocessor. <laughs> uh, but there are a few people out there that seem to defend the six five zero two, so we might have to just get a few of those in. We can set up some uh, and beat them combative, <laughs> combative uh, conversations. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm sure there are a few point. out there. And we were talking about IBM, the IBM eleven thirty earlier. Perhaps it's come become. I come from a deck world. I don't understand all those IBM machines. 
and the endless three-letter acronyms. It's just... I'm not sure they do. There's, there's, there's almost no reference to the world outside IBM. Everything is I, IBM with its own names. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, what's that, what, what does that mean there? Oh, it's a disk drive. Well, why can't they call it a disk drive? Um... Again, I think uh, I think perhaps if we if we fetch someone in, perhaps from the IBM museum, but um, from the IBM at Hursley Park, Hursley Park, yeah, that would be good. Yeah. Having said that, ICL was just as bad. That is true. I've read some of the reports from the ICL. The the, the, the team that's working on, well, it's part of the team that's working on the twenty nine sixty six, but they're also decoding and recovering the executive and the operating systems from the ICL nineteen hundred series. Yeah. And that's impenetrable as well, unless you know... It is. ...the version numbers and all the names involved well, again, as well. I mean, it's, it's, it's just full of acronyms, isn't it? OCU, SCP, SCU. I mean, I know, if, I know a few more ICL acronyms than I do IBM acronyms, but it's well, just I, as bad. I only know the ICL acronyms because on the front of the machines, uh, it says SCP, which I know is Store... Well, there's SCU, Store Control Unit. Right. SEB is System Control Processor, I believe, which is the uh, the terminal-based engineer's console, effectively. Uh, OCP is Order Code Processor. Right. Which is basically the CPU. Okay, so I think I've proved my point. I know yeah. nothing about those. <laughs> so we need to get those guys in as well. Again, I think perhaps we could have a, a face-off between the ICL and the IBM. Yeah, we point. could... Um, oh, this is a complete aside. I was um, talking to a visitor at the museum... Just yesterday, uh, who was an IBM? Oh, no, sorry, who was an ICL salesman in the days, the early days of selling the ICL twenty nine hundred series, mm. and we happened to get on to uh, the systems he'd sold, and he mentioned Cambridge University, and I said, "Oh yes, that's right, because Cambridge didn't buy ICL, did they? They bought an IBM machine." And we were back into the 80s in a second. <laughs> uh, his knuckles begin to white uh, to, to to go white. He was as annoyed now as, uh, as they were then, then. <laughs> actually. And I nearly said, "Ah, oh, actually, the chap that actually pushed that through at Cambridge University is actually just in the other part of the museum. Just here, yes. <laughs> you probably recognise him. Yes. Uh, I left them to it actually, um, but it, it's. It's it's staggering. I, well, he was a salesman. He probably lost a huge amount of well, com- yeah. commission Quite, on yeah. <laughs> selling one of those machines. A lot of money. Um, yeah, so that's IBM and ICL, head-to-head. What's it all mean, guys? And what do all those acronyms mean? Might we extend that to perhaps a two-hour session? I think so. And uh, it's the sort of thing, you know, if we have an episode in the pub... Yes. That would work in the pub. We can get everyone round the table. Yes. Yeah. And no thumping, no well, hitting each other. We'll have to mediate, obviously. <laughs> we'll have to mediate, yeah, fine. I think um, we need to do a bit of editing. We need to add in the uh, introduction, uh, our little theme. Little intro music. Intro music, which lasts all of about 15 seconds, and uh, it might not last, but we'll, uh, we'll include it for today. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. And any feedback... Suggestions, yes, absolutely. That's important to us as well. Yeah, uh, we have our own list in mind of people we want to talk to, and we are going to run the basis of this. We find this interesting, and we're going to talk to these people. 
Well, but come up with suggestions. Yeah, unless we get other suggestions in the meantime, we'll just rant. But no. um, if if, there, if if listeners have uh, topics for suggestion, machines for suggestion, questions, etc., not on, on any aspect, I think of, of computer history. Yeah, obviously, uh, then go for it because then obviously that steers us. It is museum news from around the world and individual projects as well. Yep. If there are any other idiots out there trying to connect a PDP-8 up to control a model steam engine, I would be more than pleased to hear from them. More of that in the next episode, perhaps. Do you think that's likely? I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll find out. Uh, well, it will be if there's some recommendations or suggestions for it. Right. Okay. Fingers crossed. Thanks, everybody. Thanks very much. Cheerio. Bye-bye now.